Hello and very welcome, uh, one and all, to the week that really was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. It is the 12th of January, 2024. We, as ever, are recording this on Thursday night, the 11th of January at about 8 o'clock in the evening. Sarah, how is your week? Good, yeah. Can't complain. Kids went back to school, John. And were you trousering all that money you made last week from shilling for, from, for Big Pharma on this podcast? Yeah, it's buying Chanel handbags. We had a lot of complaints. We had a lot of complaints because if you listened to this show last week, you know Sarah and I talked for a little bit about uh, our mutual use of a drug called Ozempic and we got multiple queries as to whether or not we were on somebody's payroll or whether we were taking any money for doing that. And the answer definitively is no. It's literally just a drug that we're both taking and a lot of people are interested in and we thought it would be the first show of the year. It would be interesting enough to uh, talk about it but one of our commenters was quite short and to the point and said uh, i don't tune in to listen to a, listen about your personal lives um, fair so. enough <laughs> i mean fair enough but just because it was january and like the, th- the gas thing about it is that loads of people asked and were annoyed and we're asking about whether we're being paid by big pharma and no we're not but like you know i mean if only if only but uh a lot of people privately messaged me about it and said, oh, what is this? Where, where, what do I do? How do I, like people I know who have issues with their weight. So like I feel from my point of view, like a lot of people listen to the podcast and I was get complaining about the fact that people don't aren't open about this drug and a lot of people who need it don't know about it. So I'm happy enough to have discussed it on the, on the podcast, but I accept the criticism that it's a bit off the beaten track of our normal topics. But in our defense, it was also January and there was not a lot going on in the political world. Well, that all changed this week. It's been a, it's been a busy week. Uh, immigration has once again been, I suppose, the number one political topic in the country for another week. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a kind of an odd week yeah. to watch because it, it sort of feels to me like Somebody in, in Grips was saying to me during the week when they were, were covering these various issues that it kind of feels like the government have just kind of like abandoned all pretense of kind of engaging seriously with the issues and have now just, and I'm not teeing you up for anything here, but have now just kind of just adopted this approach of just literally shouting down the opposition. And uh, I got a little taste of that obviously on Monday night myself. But I, I notice in general now that like you have politicians out there just kind of like blatantly denying things that are true. I mean, so we, we get lecture at misinformation all the time. We have several government politicians going on television and radio to say things like, no, no, people aren't coming in here without any passports. That's happening. Um, and then we had poor Neil Richmond, who was on television with me on Monday night, being sent out to say that actually, you know, we changed the immigration policy in Ballon Robe from it being accommodation for male asylum seekers to being women and children. That was actually something we'd planned all along and had nothing to do with the protests. And don't anyone dare think that protests are are influencing our views in any way, shape or form. Um, and then there was just this kind of odd doubling down, not just by him on that show, but in, in general all week, this kind of odd doubling down that we have to have the debate with immigration, but only on the terms that we say we are 100% right Immigration is great, shouldn't be restricted. People need to shut up and stop listening to misinformation. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, but I think it's a fair summary of a general pervasive attitude about a number of things, like not just immigration. Immigration is obviously a hot topic at the moment, so it seems like it's mostly about immigration. But I think that exists about any a lot of things. I think that exists about, um, you know, articles by the National Women's Council this, this week about how, about the upcoming referendum. Like, do they take us for fools? Do they Do they think that, people actually believe that that piece of the, of the constitution has actually stopped women from working. Do they think we're stupid? Yeah, for, the, for, the, 
For those who don't know what we're talking about, Orla O'Connor of the National Women's Council of Ireland had an opinion piece in the Irish Times, I believe on, I actually think it was over the weekend, last weekend, I think it was on last weekend's weekend edition of the paper, in which she was making the case for voting yes in the referendums. And she said, words to the effect of, that the women in the home article in the Constitution obliges the state to keep women from working. Which is funny because she works and her salary is mostly paid for by the state and the taxpayer. Yeah. Um, and it's complete fib. Complete yeah. fib. And uh, broadcast it. I mean, obviously the Irish Times didn't tell that lie, but they published it. They would have they would have read the piece before they published it and they are smart enough to know it's an inaccuracy and they published it anyway. Presumably on the grounds that she has free speech and if she wants to fib, she's entitled to fib. But really, it, that, that excuse wouldn't wash if I published an article with a fib in it like that. Yeah, and I think, um, well, I'll get back to the immigration point in a sec. I think Michael McDill did a great article, um, you know, a counter argument to all of that. And I think the government will be becoming increasingly, say for something massive happening between now and the 8th of March, will be becoming increasingly confident that the government is going to get a deserved bloody nose uh, in these referenda. But we'll get back to that at some other point. On the immigration thing, yeah, I think that, I think that what there's a, a combination of things going on there, but I think one of them is a rising panic in the government about what they're hearing from the public, how far away from them they've allowed the narrative to run on this I- I issue, and largely because of their own incompetent messaging. And um, you know, like if I was to draw a, a, a timeline of where this became hugely problematic for them. And I'm just talking about now from a communications point of view, you know, if we go back to North Inner City and those protests, whatever, coming out and calling everyone who attended that 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 protest racist, let's call it what it is, racism. Like going back to that, their messaging has been absolutely appalling, calling people names, not listening, not listening. And now in panic, I think, trying to kind of shout down good points and and you you talked just there or you mentioned briefly that you were on um the tonight show or what's it called i keep forgetting. the tonight show so tonight show i just can't get let go of vincent brown um but uh you know and you and i said on this podcast like i have a huge amount of time for neil richmond and i think he's a very good senator and he's very bright and there's a lot of things that you know he's a good politician but it was like watching somebody whose brief has been don't let him say those smart things that we know land with people because just whatever happens, just don't let him say the following four four sentences because what we're finding uh, from either, you know, feedback from the electorate or whatever kind of um, investigations we're doing, those four sentences, which by the way, we can, we can name them now when I finish talking and they're not completely absurd. They're just common sense sentences, but those kind of statements are landing really well with the public and the public agree with these kind of statements. So whatever happens, whatever happens, don't let him say those smart things because we're in trouble here. And I don't, I don't, I think it's like, I, I agree with you that there's a kind of a sea change, a slight shift in the mentality, but I think it's coming from a place of panic. They realize that completely lost the room, that people are fed up being talked to like they're idiots on a number of topics, but this in particular, that people have some concerns about immigration and how immigration is being handled concerns that could have been addressed and could have been talked out you know like I've said before 
you're the Taoiseach, you're the Taunashta, you're the Minister for Foreign Affairs, you're the Minister for Defence of the whole of Ireland, not just the people you like. And those people should have been engaged with, there should have been a conversation about these things, these things a year ago. And there wasn't, there was just name calling and calling people far right. And now the pool of people who are far right is basically the whole country. The narrative have gotten away from them. And I think they're in a free fall and a panic. And they know that there's local elections coming up and they're trying to scramble to come like to try and come back with some kind of like pretending that suddenly it's not men and it's women and what like they don't know the, the the whole thing has gotten away from them and I think that it what you're seeing is a sh- absolute panic on their part and too good for them because you know those like there's loads of people in Ireland and I could sum it up in one sentence like I think that most people in Ireland don't have a particular problem with immigration, think that like Ireland wouldn't run, would grind to a halt without immigration in multiple, if not all sectors, practically, that we are extremely welcoming to people. But there are problems with the access, with the way people come in, with the way people are managed, with with the way people who are refused asylum are managed, with the way deportations are. And asking those kind of questions, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. It should be a debate we're mature enough to have, but we're not. And those people have been called far right. And now the whole thing has gotten away from them. Six months till the local elections, three months till a referendum. And I think, and and Fianna Gael TDs and people not running all over the shop. And I think what you're seeing there is just pure panic. And maybe, and maybe nine months to a general election. Because I was talking to a couple of TDs this week who suggested that September might be a good time for a general election with the kids just back at school and everyone back from their holidays and in the best mood that they're likely to be in this year because um, no one wants to canvas in the wet and the wind of January and February of next year. Um, so so that that's just something to think about. Just on the on the uh, I, I don't want to talk at length about it, but just on the on the TV appearance because it was interesting. Like you, I first of all, I, it's not really that I like Neil. I know Neil going back many years. I mean, I've been in his house um, yeah. not 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 recently, but like decades. <laughs> did he know you were there? He did, he did. He did know I was there. Um, uh, or actually, I don't want to be. Was it his house? Was I think it was his house. It might have been somebody else's. Uh, but anyway, the point is, we're friendly. We're not friends by any stretch of the imagination. Like uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, but we're friendly. We've known each other through friends for for years. Um, and he's a good guy. And and just for the record, both before and after the show on Monday night, we were perfectly cordial and friendly, and you know, in in and, and chatty. But I really did get the sense that he had a game plan going into that program which was to as you say uh basically be scrappy do uh you know hold me back and uh, you know I, who am i to judge my own appearances but I, I didn't think it worked for him um and i think it came across as a little bit panicked um and i also like i felt sorry for him because i struggled to believe that somebody as smart as neil believed for one second that line he was sent out to spin about why the government changed its policy in ballon rope like I, I and i i i, I think the government has a habit of doing this, you know. If I mean, they keep talking about this communications problem. I don't know if people watched the program Monday night. It was Claire Brock kept coming back to this topic. Oh, is it a communications issue? The government has more communications advisors than literally any other entity in the country. I mean, Facebook, Google, take the biggest private sector company you have. None of them have the kind of communications resources that the government have in terms of full-time advisors, PR firms, access to opinion polling, departmental budgets to do focus groups. They've got all the communications resources anyone could possibly hope to have in this country. That doesn't mean they're good, John. Uh, it doesn't mean they're used well, number one, but also I think fundamentally, and this is where I slightly disagree with what you were saying, um, is that it's not really at its core a communications problem. 
Because yes, all those communications mistakes that you mentioned have been made. But ultimately, this is a policy problem. Ultimately, this is a problem of um, we have to shunt loads of people into communities that don't want them because we've nowhere else to put them and we're unwilling to tell them that we've no room for them. That's the 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 ultimate problem. And I mean, there there isn't really a communications problem, that, a strategy that solves that in the short term. I mean, you could potentially, if if this was over a longer term with, with, with people coming in more slowly, you could possibly design and implement a communication strategy with implementation. But when, you're, when your communication strategy is, we're going to send workmen into that dilapidated hotel in your town that's been closed for 20 years on a Wednesday, people are going to find out about it on a Thursday and migrants are going to arrive on a Friday, you're going to have a backlash. There's, there's no communication strategy in the world that can solve that problem. Because, um, and I actually had an argument with somebody today uh, in Grift because there was some talk about it. Um, no, no, this this business of, of um, because this is another thing Claire Brock kept talking about on, on Monday night, this business of, um, you know, is there, and, and Cathy Sheridan had an article during the week in the Irish Times about how, you know, this thing about migrant men is terrible scaremongering thing. Uh, and you're trying to suggest that men are all criminals who are coming over here to take your jobs and your women. You but that's why I love data, data, because um, if you just look at numbers, that can be that can that can be quite, that answer can be achieved quite easily. What do you mean? So there's there's not there's data of how many people are coming into Ireland, when they're coming in, where they're being housed, or whatever. And if you look at the numbers, a huge amount of marmen. Yeah, but I think I think the argument that's being made is that to suggest that it's a problem that they are men is somehow uh, oh sorry anti male or bigoted in some way and I don't think it is because I was looking at a, a report out of, of Germany today uh, I think it was that the report wasn't today and it wasn't the 11th of January it was I think from last week where they went through figures which which do link uh, a huge number of sort of sex crimes to male migrants and Sweden has had the same experience and, and that is not to say and this is one of the things this is one of the things where the conversation kind of goes off the rails because you say something like that and the government or somebody in the media jumps on you and say, oh, you're saying all male migrants are rapists or sex oh, criminals or yeah. pests. No, that is not what anyone is saying. Just as, by the way, like this is another thing Richmond tried on, on Monday night and it's a, a standard line, which is that you can't be against some immigration. You have to be for all immigration or none. So, you, you, so, so, if you, so the standard line now is, and I saw Leo Varadkar doing this today, um, we have to accept migration has been great for Ireland in the round. Well, well, yeah. I mean, a pint of beer is great for me on a Friday night. 27 pints is not. Mm-hmm. You know, everything in moderation. And there has to be a line somewhere where you, where, you, where, you, where, you, where you draw the line. But it is not surprising that when you have, as a former man in his 20s years ago, like every young people in particular have, have needs. And I'm not talking sexual needs here. I'm not being gross like that but I'm saying you need sort of purpose in life you need activity you need hope you need direction you need something to work towards and we are taking you know gangs of men from around the world and putting them in little rural villages where they have nothing to do where they don't speak the language where they have no social outlet where they have no women to talk to um, bad things are going to happen that, that's, that's human nature like that's evolution. That's not implying that every man is a threat. It's implying that this strategy of putting 30 young men into a community is going to A, raise suspicions, and B, potentially cause problems. 
um, it's not an integration strategy. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's using these communities as a dumping ground, and that's why there's so much concern. And it's not racist, and it's not bigoted. It's plain common sense. So you think that if you took like the same amount of young Irish men at one point and, and put them in the middle of nowhere in, I don't know. Yes is the answer to your question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, it's not a race thing. It's a male thing. It's 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 more than even a male thing. It's a human thing. Like you, you can't, um, you can't expect young men to sit and do nothing while people give them a stipend amount of money every week, um, and not look to better themselves and improve themselves. These people are coming here looking for a better life. That means that if they can't if they can't achieve that legitimately, some portion of them will seek to achieve it illegitimately. There's a re- reason the Italian mafia became a thing in New York, right? There's a there's a reason why there's a reason why um, criminal gangs tend to disproportionately attract migrant people, and that is because they don't have the same opportunities that native-born people have. This is basic sociology. It's not racism. I mean, they're. they're you know, some of the biggest gangsters in the talk about the Irish people going to the US. Some of the biggest organized criminal gangs in the US um, have had very senior Irish leadership in it um, for that reason. And there's no reason to expect that it would be different when people come here from other countries. Gangs of New York, as I recall. Yeah, and then there was also the guy up in Boston whose name I can't remember, uh, but he was like a major. It's like oh, um, yeah, there was a movie about him as well. There was Matt Damon was in it, yeah. um, as I recall. Yeah, uh, I can't think of his name. But uh, some 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 people. There was a few. Comments. There was actually a good few because there was a. Remember, there was the guy they could kill. They kept trying to kill him, and he kept surviving. Mm. Um, there was a few. Anyway, the point is well made that you know Irish people have. But even I mean, I I don't mean to be bad, but like when I was in Australia, I've been in Australia a few times, and when I was in Australia tra- traveling years ago. I was at multiple on multiple occasions fairly morto by the behaviour of some of my uh, countrymen uh, in parts of Australia. I'll go. I'll go one better. Uh, I remember. I remember speaking to a couple of Australians, sort of in the early the early teens, which was a time, if you remember, lots of Irish people went to Australia during the crash, and yeah. like there was definitely significant anti-Irish feeling in parts of yeah. Australia by Fully. the early teens because yeah. of the conduct of some of some Irish, mainly young men. Yeah. Um, this is not. I, I mean, of course, that kind of gets washed, brushed under the carpet here because we're Irish and everyone loves us and everywhere we go, they they, they love us. But no, that's historically not been the case, um, and it's it's not even been the case in our lifetimes all the time. Um, and it's not nothing to do with our race, just as it's nothing to do with the race of somebody from Mali or Afghanistan or wherever if they come here. It is to do with the sociological disposition of young men. Um. I do think there's a particular problem, though, I will say, with uh, and, and you see this in the figures in, in Sweden, for example, with, with young men who come from particularly sexually repressed cultures. I think that's something yeah. that we're not allowed to talk about. But there are young men who come from, I mean, I mean um, Algeria is a country that features high in the nationality of people accused of sex offences in Sweden, for example, uh, where they record these things. And I think that is that is inextricably linked to fact when you come from a country where women are expected to cover themselves from head, and foot, head to foot in black. Uh, to a country where women walk around in, in miniskirts, which is perfectly legitimate. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a certain degree of social adjustment there that, that doesn't always take place. Um, and we're, well, we're, we're not. But let's have our NGOs spend money on, uh, you know, pushing for consent classes for people in college. 
Yeah, well. never ever ever mention anything about like any part of integration into Irish society requiring some kind of cultural like you know acknowledgement of the cultural differences when it comes to women because mm. that would be you know racist it would but this is the conversation that we we you know we're very queasy about having and as a result I think we get oh I can I'm like even when we're talking about it now I can I can feel the comments it's like nobody wants to have nobody wants to grasp the nettle nobody wants to have these hard conversations nobody wants to say anything now but it's the same old same well, the, the reason for that is that that there are exceptions to every rule there will be and this is this is what's really important to say there will be young men who come here from the most oppressive dark sort of you know theocratic muslim countries in the world who come here behave respectfully try and integrate themselves into the country and build a really good life for them. And there will be some of them who are arriving into a village near you, some of those men. And it's important to remember that. And I think one of the things we should do as a society is try and give people the benefit of the doubt at an individual level. But that doesn't mean that we can't say at a sociological population level, it is a bad idea to invite in hundreds of these people, if not tens of thousands of them, um, and just dump them around the country in the expectation that all of them will be like that. I mean, there's the there's the benefit giving people the benefit of the doubt, and then there's just being naive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the and that's that's the thing. But it comes back to this sort of Irish debating rule, which is how we discuss things. Which is that there's you know for for liberals. Do you remember about five or six years ago, liberals used to say that everything was nuanced. Well, now nothing is nuanced. So you, you can't say you can't say um, you know most immigrants good, but Let's be be clear. Some of them are going to pose a risk. Now you can't say some are going to pose a risk without being a racist and, con- and condemning all of them. Um, or you can't you can't express a concern about the, the 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 sensibility of putting men solely into community without being accused of being you know stirring up racial hatred and suspicion. I mean, I listen to this conversation, and if you think that's what I'm doing, you know, you need to go back to English language comprehension school. It's not. The people um, who say you're doing the people who say you're doing that, like this whole thing, and I'm really like tired of it now, of like that you're stirring up, you know, like first of all, like nobody's stirring any. It's like instead of address, it's it's another tactic to never face the issue head on is to blame John McGurk and Gript. This wouldn't be happening except you've been rabble rousing up the simpletons in the public and teaching them how to be bold when they didn't know any better and they weren't even they didn't even know about racism until you taught it to them, John. Like, I'm tired of it. You, you, does anybody really believe that if they go out, walk around Ireland tomorrow and have a conversation with 20 people that immigration won't be a subject that half of those people might bring up? Yeah, and by the way, of those people, I mean... I would love, I would love, I'd love about that many readers. I really would, but I know how many readers we have, and it's very impressive. Yeah, it is. I'm really happy with 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 the size of our audience, but the idea that people are concerned in Ireland because because of Grip Media. I mean, most people don't know who we are. And by the way, you're advertising us. People came to Grip because you're ignoring them. People didn't become racist because they came to Grip. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not. It's not a, a, this isn't a construction of someone's ideology. Like this isn't a, yeah, this isn't constructed by someone's massive, amazing PR and communication skills via their online website. This has been constructed by your bad communication. And to your point earlier on, obviously your bad policy. Yeah. And speaking of bad policy, did we talk about what happened in Ross Lair? Um, No. 
with the with the people arriving in and then going missing. No, we did not. Yeah, because that happened. That happened today. I mean, obviously on on Wednesday of this week, we had the, the frankly horrifying situation of fourteen people, or, or was it eighteen? Fourteen people, including two children, showing up in a refrigerator truck in Rosslair. Um, they were ringing the police in England because they were running out of air. Yes. And um, I think knocked a hole in the side of the refrigerator truck to try and let some air into the thing. Which is um, just like one of the, you know, I have certain things that just nightmare and that's a nightmare scenario. Horrific. And, um, you know, suffocating in a, t- in a thing. It's just grim. But they arrived and then when they opened up, they didn't even know they were coming to Ireland. They didn't even know where they were. It, right. it seems fairly apparent to me that they're probably their intended destination with the UK. Right. Um, and they've ended up in Rosslare. And now, so now eight of them have gone missing. So the Irish state rescued these people from a truck, took them to an asylum centre in Dublin. Now eight of them have gone missing. And, the, you know, all of this, all so far so sort of sad and so sort of, sort of, sort of normal. But the bit that gets me is the Garda Siakana have said they're not looking for the eight people. They're Genuinely have no interest in where these people have gone. They're not looking for them because they haven't committed any criminal offence, which is bizarre to me because surely they're, you know, they're, they're missing people up and down the country. Every every week we get a notification in from the Gardaí about a missing person. Usually, I have to say, a young teenage girl. And it's, this girl has been missing. We're looking for her. There are concerns about her welfare. And usually in, the, in those cases, they're thankfully found alive, usually some other town where they've run off with somebody or something. But in this case... Shouldn't we be actively looking for these people? Shouldn't there be concerns about their welfare? I mean, for all we know, they've been they've been rounded up by a criminal gang and sold into prostitution. Um, and the guardies say we're not looking for them. I mean, that strikes me as you know, if you criticise immigration, you're callous. But is that not really callous? Well, I think it's callous to say to give to have people arrive in Ireland seeking asylum and give them a tent. You know. Well, yeah, well, that's true. There's a lot, like, there's a lot there's of there's callousness. A lot of I mean, you know, I said, like, said to, to somebody the other day, like, if I'm on this podcast next week and I tell you that Keith and I are, you know, going to foster some children, um, eight of them, but we're not, we don't actually have any bedrooms or food for them. We're just going to put them in the garden. Do we get a pat on the back for how nice we are? Like, we're not, you're not really being respectful of people's basic human rights if you start giving them tents and no. saying sleep in a tent outside the offices like we're not exactly we're not doing a good job no no we're not but but i mean we're not the far right we're bringing them in that's the main thing and we're not going to put any cap on the numbers or, or do anything that might restrict people coming here because that would be mean i mean that's basically where the debate is what, would be mean if we did that so we're not going to do it well we don't we don't like you know it doesn't matter what it is it only matters what it looks like john and what it looks like is that we're great and wonderful and fulfilling all all of our, you know, so-called legal obligations. And, uh, you know, we're doing everything that we're the best boy in the class. And we're doing everything we're supposed to be. But the reality on the ground is not, it's not the case. The funny thing with these lo- those legal obligations is that it's I, the least interrogated. I knew you were going to bite. Yeah, it's the, the least interrogated claim that's made by, uh, I mean, in fairness, maybe we haven't been strong enough on this either. But Denmark exercised an opt-out on this. Yeah. Not because the people of Denmark are cruel Scandinavian Viking monsters who hate migrants. In fact, they have a very large migrant population. Um, but because they said, look, we, we just can't cope with that number of people, so we're exercising an opt-out. An opt-out, by the way, which Ireland also possesses. Um, but we, we couldn't possibly be like the Danes 
which by the way Denmark has a has a, a left wing government it doesn't even have it's not even governed by like lunatics like me it's got a, a left wing social democrat government that just says no 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 this isn't worth the 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 pain and the social cohesion it would cause therefore no we will take as many people as we can take and no more than that so the legal obligations line really doesn't wash because we could do the same thing that Denmark's doing, but we're not going to do that because um, it's funny when I said this to Neil Richmond, albeit about Poland and, and Hungary to other countries, he then immediately flipped legal obligations into moral obligations, which tells me that it's not really about legal obligations at all. It's about this kind of savior complex that the government seems to have. Um, I know, and moral obligations seem to go by the wayside when it comes to other issues. Yeah, you have a moral obligation not to have kids waiting five years in operations for scoliosis. Or we reported a story last week about a father who, uh, and um, this is actually relevant to to your husband, not his fault, of course, but like uh, he he will know about this. Um, a father who, who brought his kid to the to the dentist and was told that the kid would need orthodontic work um, and couldn't afford to go private. Was told he'd have to get it would have to get it on the state. Kid is thirteen. He needs corrective orthodontic work. And five years is what he's going to have to wait. I mean, that, that's astonishing. And then he's not a kid anymore. He's not, and uh, if I know anything, I, I'm again, I'm not a dental expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I would imagine that if you wait five years at that age for orthodontic work, it probably becomes a lot, a lot more serious as you get older. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a dentist. Even though sometimes I feel like just via osmosis, I'm part dentist. I'm not a dentist. Um, but yeah, I, but also I'd imagine that kid rocks up uh, when he finally gets the letter and someone says, oh, you're 18 now. No, you're not. It's <laughs> good luck. <laughs> like, yeah. So moral obligations. I mean, I could list off the things that I would think the government has a moral obligation to do. But so it's a, you know, moral obligation is a, is a very handy, like trump card when it suits. But there's moral obligations to, you know, people all over Ireland who are exactly like you say in the health within the health service within housing within lots of things um, but that, that doesn't seem to apply in those cases so moral well, obligation is when it suits you what really drives me batty with this government and it's not just on immigration but immigration is a good example of it is how good they are at doing the easy part it mm. is easy to sit there and say we have moral obligations in fact it is also easy to take uh, 15,000 people into the country this year What's really hard is to integrate them and accommodate them and 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 do so in a way that gets the population to accept your policy. They have no interest in doing that. Uh, when it comes to health, it's really easy to say we're going to spend twenty four billion this year. We're going to increase this. We're going to increase that. It's really hard to actually deliver results uh, and and get down into the granular details of what's causing the logjam of the health service and fix them. They have no interest in doing that. Mm. Uh, it's 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 it's. This is if, if saying things was an Olympic sport, this government would win gold medals. They say all the right things all the time. And then I don't know whether it's a lack of skill or a lack of interest in actually following through and doing things. Uh, the only policies they ever enact um, are the ones that are remarkably easy, like free contraception. That's easy. People are getting contraception anyway. Just take the price off it. Uh, medical cards for kids. That's easy. Just, you know, it's, 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 it's just fill in this application form, get your medical card. But the actual big reforms, they're crap at. Big infrastructure projects, I mean, building building the children's hospital, building the Metro North, anything that's a little bit difficult or a little bit complicated, I mean, you might as well be calling in. The I've heard about the children's hospital in ages. Probably another 50 billion. <laughs> so, 
But you might as well be calling in Bob the Builder to do this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's 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 is he still a thing? By the way, I don't have young kids. I remember Bob the Builder was a big thing there a few years ago. Um, I haven't come across him, but yeah, I'm sure. I don't know. He's probably not allowed anymore. He's probably a racist or something. Well, he's a bad role model because he's he a got man, a man, man who does the building. He got uh, yeah, likely, likely. He, he was he was he was he succumbed to the far right and there. He's been killed. I, I had to spend some time with my nephews and nieces over Christmas, and and I love my nephews and nieces dearly, and they're all small kids, and they all watch children's programs. But as an aside, so instead of talking about Ozempic, the next time we have nothing to talk about, I want to go on a lengthy rat rant about how they have ruined kids' programs, and how they were much better when you and I were kids. But that's a, a separate a separate conversation. Anyway, what else uh, caught your eye this week? What else caught my eye this week? So, uh, Anders Brevik, the uh, individual who killed um, 68 people in Norway, you know, he has this appeal um, for his saying that he's lonely and his human rights are being um, infringed upon by the fact that he's not allowed to have human interaction. Um, how, lo- how long ago was that? Because I remember it. But I think it was a quite a long time ago, wasn't it? The, I mean, was it more than 10 years ago? That's a good question. Um, I have to look that up when it was. It, it, are you sure 10 years ago? Um, It was uh, 22nd of July, 2011. So yeah, um, a long time. Ago. I would have thought that was. I, if you'd asked me now, I would have said four. Anyway, he's taking this case because he's lonely and um, you know, poor guy and all that. Um, if he hadn't killed, shot sixty eight people, he'd have sixty eight people to talk to. But um, I just think really interesting. Kind of is the families of those sixty eight people are obviously like angry that he's back in the media or whatever. But it's an interesting like kind of question about he's in solitary confinement. He, you know, wants to um, be able to at the very least respond to letters and correspondence that he gets from other lunatics who want to talk to him. And I think it's absolutely appropriate that he shouldn't be allowed to talk to anyone. And he, you know, he's saying that he's becoming suicidal. I think they should absolutely make sure he doesn't commit suicide because if he's miserable, he should continue with that misery for as long as possible. Well, I, I would... I, I can I can I just say I think his case is is the perfect repost to anyone out there who supports the death penalty because I, I get it I get supporting the death penalty I get saying people should die for their crimes I completely understand the arguments for it and I understand where people are coming from but in terms of punishment Anders Breivik is forty four years old so he went into prison when he was thirty one thirty two something like that he has if he lives a natural life he has a good forty years ahead of him. And he has no human interaction whatsoever. He is in a, a cell with four walls, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, I think death will be preferable. Um, I really do. I think I think that is the the definition of a fate worse than death. What he's going to I understand completely why he's suing to be allowed to talk to people. I hope he loses, but you know, I understand completely why he's suing. I mean, he killed sixty-eight young people um in cold blood because he thought he was advancing some kind of agenda. Um, but yeah, I, I think his case is, is that's, that's what should happen to people when they commit crimes like that. And that's what should happen to people in Ireland when they commit crimes. Like if, and obviously Churchwood, it never did, but like if it were to happen in Ireland, that's the kind of sentence they should get in Ireland as well. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting one anyway. I'm following it because I just, it's a kind of a perverse, like fascination that he's even 
allowed out of the cell and allowed to be back in court and allowed to be back in the media, which, you know, there's no doubt about it, obviously tortures the families of the people who, of the victims. But um, I just think, yeah, like you're absolutely right that it, it, it does when you really think about it. You know, people, there's photos of his cell and, you know, he's got an ex- uh, exercise machine and he's got, he can, he can read, like he's got, you know, reading materials or whatever. Um, and when you first look at it, it's like, oh, that's too good for him, you know, it shouldn't be allowed. But I'd say it does like make you think about the death penalty that like maybe like death would be a release for him. I work from home, right? So I work from home and it's me and the dog here when, when, when Orla is away. Uh, during the day and today Thursday is always a, a quite long and she's a very bad timetable on Thursday so she's she's away for most of the day and like I, I, I talk to her in the morning I talk to her in the evening when she comes home and I find that day without kind of other human contact there are days I can find to be quite long yeah. Uh, so so yeah I you know somebody who says that it's okay he's got a bike you know human contact is sort of a, a, the, the fundamental human need Um, and you know that's why solitary confinement is such an awful Awful yeah, punishment. Even just talk like I, I mean, I'm at home most days with small kids, and even small kid like mine and small kids on your own is very isolating. Like you know, like I'm lucky that I have a couple of neighbours, and you know they're in the same position. We kind of have a cup of tea or whatever. But like those adult interactions for me are really important because I will be with small kids all the time, and even that on itself is very isolating. Never mind being alone without anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Even the I even got the dog, you know, and it's for a couple of hours in the daytime. So, so yeah, so yeah. Look, <laughs> but if any crime warrants what he's suffering, yeah, the crime he committed warrants it. So you know, um, oh, he's, a long, he's a long way to go to serve a year for even one of those for every one of those deaths. Put it that way. If he yeah. served a year for each of the sixty-eight people he killed, he'll be in there a long time. I want to actually speaking of things legal. I was kind of taken by the case this week of the uh, lady whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, I think it was Jacinta McSherry, something or other. She's a teacher um, up in Donegal, and she, Jacinta McSherry O'Connor. And she was convicted of uh, sexually assaulting, sexually abusing, I should say more appropriately, a 13-year-old boy all the way back in 1985 and sentenced to three years in prison. And I... I the piece coming out about this tomorrow, which might ruffle some feathers, but I really do think, and I, I'm, I'm talking to you as somebody who's a, you know got law degrees and all the rest of it, I am, I would be concerned about the justice system uh, on foot of that case. The background to it, Sarah, if you don't know, was basically um, the complainant came forward in his 50s. He said, when I was 13, this woman sexually assaulted me. Uh, she was giving me grinds. She was a friend of our family. She came on holidays with us and basically she performed oral sex on me and so on and so forth. And it haunted me. And now finally, 40 years later, I want to make a complaint. So he was uh, 13 and she was what age? 24. Right. Now, her defense was, this never happened. Yes, we were close. Yes, we were friendly. Yes, I gave him grinds. Yes, I think he might have had a crush on me. But I've been with my husband. I was with my husband, who, the man who is now my husband at the time. He is supporting me through this trial. Uh, he's sticking by me. He believes me. Um, I have references from 40 colleagues who say this just doesn't accord with the person they know at all. Um, and I didn't do it. That was basically her defense. And the prosecution barrister said, well, why would this man lie? And the defense barrister said, well, how can you be certain about events that happened 40 years ago? 
The jury deliberated for 11 hours, 11 hours, uh, which is a long time for a jury to be out, and eventually came back with a majority verdict, 11 to 2, that she's guilty and she was sentenced to prison today. So the verdict now was last November. She was sentenced to prison today for three years. And, I mean, obviously, you've got to respect the jury. You've got to say the jury went in there, they heard the whole case, they listened to the evidence, they obviously took it very seriously because they were out for 11 hours, and they came back with a majority guilty verdict. But I really don't know how a case like that could have been taken. Because in a lot of these historic abuse cases, Sarah, where there's, you know, it's a teacher or it's a priest or something. There was another one last week, for example, of a judge, actually, who was convicted of historic sexual abuse. But there were yeah, multiple... There, there were or, mu- former former Fianna Fáil counselor as well, I think. Yes. There were f- multiple complainants. There were like multiple people telling the same story, which which you know all unconnected to each other, which 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 paints a picture for a jury, and you can say because there's a real case there. I don't know how fair it is. I'll put it this way: I don't know how fair it is to ask a jury to decide on guilt beyond reasonable doubt when there is one complainant and one defendant, uh, and the events took place forty years ago, and there's no forensic evidence. Uh, hold on a second, now. Well, this is it. You can this way. You can put me. Hold put on me, a second, put, now. Put me Please. right. No, I mean, come on, John. The, the, part of the reason I, I would I would challenge you there and say that some of the reason on that is in, in, in a, a sort of a, as the cool kids say these days, unconscious bias you have about the fact that he's a male and she's female, and he's Possibly. and she's and he's the victim and she's the the, the perpetrator. Possibly. Um, and I feel when you're talking, like I'm immediately kind of you know thinking, God, this is very. You know, but at the same time, we've we've had cases in Ireland where like just swap those genders around and say that a woman comes forward and says, when I was 13, I had this teacher or this or whatever. This is what happened. You wouldn't think about it the same way. I see. I thought 40 people, 40 people coming forward and saying this person is of good character or whatever would be considered would be considered a bad thing. Do you not remember there was a case in our? Oh, I do. I do. A character reference for a man. And now he, I think he got off, but everyone has said it was an absolute disgrace that people were giving character because it, blah, blah, blah. There's been multiple cases. So I think some of that there now is your inherent bias about the fact that it's a male versus female, a male victim. Um, But, but the problem is as well is that uh, yeah, I can I just say something because I want to make this absolutely clear in case I get in trouble. Um, I'm not disbelieving the male victim at all, nor and I'm happy that he's gotten justice, and I accept the verdict of the jury. That 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 is so. That's not what I'm. I'm not here saying this woman is innocent. I'm not saying that. I'm, yeah. I'm. What I'm saying is that for me to ask a jury to decide on that case, and for the you know, I'm not sure if I were the DPP, I would have sent it forward to trial. Because I don't know how it is possible to establish the facts beyond a reasonable doubt. And in, in these cases, you mentioned what I'd say to you: if the gender were reversed, I'd be asking the same questions. Like, generally speaking, um, the pattern has appeared to be in Irish cases that where where there's cases of if somebody's interested in sexually abusing children, they usually don't stop after one. There's usually multiple victims who come forward, and that well, was. Okay. But John, but 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 if you follow that through, and you think about it. You have to you have to say, well, there's people out there who've sexually abused, let's say, four or five children. And then those people grow up and some of them don't want to be involved. They don't want to talk about it. They, they have their reasons or whatever. Like 
the problem with sexual abuse cases, especially historical ones like this, and in Ireland, there is many, we don't have a statute of limitations on sexual abuse cases like that for the very reason that it takes people years to come forward. And the nature of it is, is that if you come forward after years and years and years and years and years, the chances of you having evidence of, you know, apart from potentially other victims, but if it's just you and most likely you don't know if there are other victims come forward or not. The chance of you having evidence, you're not going to have screenshots, you're not going to have photos, you're not going to have, you know, letters, you're not going to have evidence of uh, CCTV footage or whatever, emails, whatever. You're not going to have evidence. So that's the difficulty with these cases. That's why they're so hard. But, you know, if you if you follow through with what you're saying and say it's very difficult to ask a jury to come to a conclusion on a case like this, then that what follows from that is to is to go back to putting statute of limitations on these kind of cases, because you're right. It is really hard to ask a jury if you're on a jury and I'm on a jury to ask us to say, OK, take your pick here. Who's made the better case? Who's lying? Because one person is lying and there's very little evidence except for word of his story and her story. You know, it is a huge responsibility to put on a ju- jury and it is unfair. But but the, the the alternative to that is to introduce statute of limitations on sexual abuse cases because yeah. by, their nature, by their nature, they don't have evidence. But, you know, I'm going to say something unpopular here. I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that isn't what we should do. And I, I, that is not taking a pro-sexual abuse point of view. That is that is saying, I mean, there's this saying in the laws, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, right? Mm-hmm. But that that has to therefore follow that it says that is is as true of people accused of crimes as it is for people who are victims of them. It has to be because in a court in this country, you're innocent until proved proven guilty, and that's really important. Proven. Um, and I, you know, if if for example, I was to say that you know, uh, the parish priest in my parish abused me in 1987, and I'm only coming forward about it now in my 40s. No. Obviously, didn't happen. Hypothetical example. Um, yeah, like that is like what's my evidence for that? Except my word against that. And is he going to get a fair trial if he's a? And I'm using the example of a Catholic priest because I'm not sure he would get a fair trial in that situation. Like I, I, I you know, I, I appreciate there are sensitivities and people don't want to come forward and all the rest of it. But that case, just looking at it, made me think: Are is our justice system? tilted unfairly against people who are accused in these situations because I think it might be. But you're also you're also making an assumption that somebody has sat on uh, sat on information and you know been thinking about it for that entire time and you know there's there's been work done on this and uh, you know by people in in the psychology profession and others who who are able to demonstrate that memory and understanding and acceptance of the fact that you're sexually abused isn't linear it doesn't it doesn't it's not always there it can come to you in adulthood you can realize that you're you can have thought that you're in a consensual relationship or you know re repackage the story in your brain I mean the brain does all kinds of funny things about these kind of matters and so the reason for no statute of limitations is because you know in the same way as, you know, if you find out that when you, if you had a, your appendix out and when you were 12 and you find out from a scan today at 39 that actually they took one of your kidneys as well and sold it. Well, you know, the clock only starts ticking on your claim for that today, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. 
okay, obviously taking one of your kidneys is a criminal act, but you know what I'm trying well, to say. There's, there's actually a really good movie about this called, uh, which HBO made back in 2018 called The Tale. Laura Dern, who people might know from, um, well, I know her from Jurassic Park, other people might know her from other things, um, was in it. And it's about it's about a woman, actually, who's about our age in the movie. She's in her 40s, who, who thinks back and recalls, so it slowly comes to terms with the fact that she was abused as a kid. So yeah, I do take that point. I do take that point. It's just that that case, it really did get me thinking about these issues because I, I do think for all that, everything that you're saying is true, there is to me, um, there is to me a risk out there of miscarriages of justice when it's when it's one person's word against another. And I, I mean, I, I'd, I, love to, I'd love to, I, I will go off and read a bit more about that case because I'd love to know. I mean, you know, you're like, why would he make this up now is a very good question. Well, that that is what the that is what the prosecution counsel said, and that yeah. I think is probably what 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 swayed the jury. And in fairness, I should mention that there was also evidence given that he had told somebody else about it when he was nineteen. So, and I think Judge Elma Sheehan, who was sitting in charge of the case, she said, "Look, this." She said to the jury, "This demonstrates that he's consistent. He's told the same story twice, thirty mm-hmm. years apart, and you have to give that weight." And the jury obviously did give it weight. Um. But yeah, I, I still think the jury were placed in a very difficult position there, um, because I, I, you know, when I read the the court's website, the court says that the, you know if there is an alternative explanation for the facts, um, then the jury has to give the benefit of the doubt to the accused person, and I'm not sure that is always happening in these cases. Anyway, yeah. now I've now I've really. Um, set myself up to be shot for saying stuff like that. Well, no, I think it's I think it's. Like, you know, I don't, I think that people who are, who are the victims deserve their day in court and deserve to, you know, sit in front of the person who, who, who's wronged them and, and, and accuse them and make, make that case. But I also think that people who are accused deserve proper, you know, to be properly um, heard and properly enabled to bring about their own defense. and, And that has to be fair. And I think that your point is well made that, you know, that's very difficult to do if, you know. A couple of decades of elapsed. A couple of decades. Like, and in a situation, I'm not talking about this case, but in a hypothetical situation where you're innocent, like, and someone's saying you did something and you know you didn't do that, but you don't remember dates or times or anything else. Do you know what I mean? A lawyer said to me recently on this topic, and this might have been why I was thinking about it, because we were talking about rape conviction rates, and he was saying that it's it's actually easier to get a conviction for historic sexual abuse than it is to get, it, it, not in every case, obviously, but mm. in a lot of cases, that is to get a conviction for rape that happened last year in a court, because with the because the events are are, are so far removed, it's much easier, particularly when it's two adults, obviously, to argue that there was consent involved or yeah, blah blah blah. Um, and so, and yeah, and I, 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 yeah, I, I do think, I do think, I, I've actually, for all that I'm a law and order guy, I'm a hang 'em and flog 'em guy. I'm also a huge believer in the rights of the accused, because, like, ultimately, if you're being sent to prison, that is, and we, Andrews Breivik bears this out. This is the state with the power to make your life hell, to ruin you. Um, this woman, and if she's guilty, it's entirely justified. Has lost her reputation, has lost her job, has lost lost everything. Um, the state has immense power to ruin your life. I think when it is you in that room with the state accusing you and saying this person committed a crime, we want to take away their liberty and their freedom and their life and their reputation, you should have every chance and every benefit of the doubt. I think that's absolutely vital to any working justice system. And I would sooner have 10, 10 guilty people walk out of court than one innocent person go to jail. That's that's where I come from on, on criminal justice. 
sprawl that I believe in law and order. So, so yeah, that this sort of stuff does bother me. And it reminds me back, I wrote a piece uh, last year about there was a, another case of a guy, I won't name him, um, but he, he, he was convicted. Do you remember the case of uh, the the journalist who was accused of, um, who basically yeah. sexually assaulting somebody because he they had gone back to his house, they had engaged in sort of adult activities, and then in the middle of the night he had woken her up and sought to instigate some more adult activities, and she didn't like this, and he got sentenced for his sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I think, I think there are there are issues with how we tilted the prosecution of these crimes in a particular way. Um, that is that is risking sending innocent people to prison. Not saying it did in this case or even in the case last year, but risking doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, on that bright note, um, I, I tell you what, I, uh, what else caught my eye this week. I'm going to lighten the conversation up. I've become addicted to this UK BBC TV program called The Traitors. Have you seen it? No, because you told me to watch Wild Horses or whatever it's called. And, What's it called? Uh, what about the spies? Oh, uh, Slow Horses. Slow Horses. So yes. I've started watching that. And are you enjoying it? Yeah, yeah, it's good. I'm only We've only watched a couple of episodes, but I did actually... Speaking of things we talked about the last time, I finished that book, Prophet Song. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, oh boy, is it heavy going. Um, won a Booker Prize. Yeah, Books no. that win a Booker Prize. I have a policy of, of not reading them deliberately. As in, like, I may read one by accident and find out it's won a Booker Prize. But I, I tend to find that Booker Prize is like, one of the things I've noticed for the last couple of decades really is that I've never enjoyed a movie that's won Best Picture at the Oscars because the Academy tends to go for a kind of like what I would call kind of pretentious films. Yeah. And I, I and I haven't read this book, but I'm just saying in general I find that the the, the Booker Prize tends to go to pretentious books. Well I have to say so we discussed it last night and one of our comments on Twitter um one of our regular commenters, actually, I won't name him just in case he doesn't want to be named. But uh, he said that, you know, he I think he'd read it and he said that he thinks it won the Booker Prize because um, that the writer had created, you know, I mentioned last time, it's about a kind of a post um, Ireland has been kind of taken over by a... By a it's, Ireland, it? it's Ireland with me in charge, basically, isn't it? It definitely gets into the characters of who's in government, like... But it's a government that basically starts taking civilians, you know, off the streets who speak out against them and people just, dis- you know, disappear and all that kind of stuff. Um, you could make the case that it's left wing or right wing all, all day, if you like. It's not really about that. Mm-hmm. But it, it, uh, anyway, our commenter said that, you know, he thinks that it won because um, that the writer has created this kind of very amazing kind of sinister um feeling of uh, like ominous feeling kind of created through the book and 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 as I went through it because when I started it off I thought it was a little bit kind of like you know plastic blag flows in the wind and it looks like a swan or whatever and like American yeah. Beauty I think that one best movie yeah there you oh. go but like that kind of shite basically um and I felt a little bit at the start like oh no is this going to be this and I also was worried that it was going to turn into some kind of woke sort of like oh all right never vote for right-wing people because this is what happens kind of cautionary tale but it's actually like that like the handmaid's tale that is ironic because um you could argue that lots of things that that are happening in the world uh on the left side are handmade 
tale-esque, a lot of the more liberal approaches to things. But anyway, that's a whole other show. But um, no, I think what I my my takeaway from that book is that it's good. It's very, very sad and it's very, very harrowing. And there was parts of it that I was just, I was traumatised. But it's worth reading. Yeah, you see, I don't, I don't like harrowing. Yeah. Orla, Orla gives me awful abuse when we watch a program because her favorite TV show is like not not her favorite TV show, her favorite genre of TV show generally starts with two people speaking Swedish in a forest. One of them is an alcoholic detective, and they've just <laughs> discovered a body buried somewhere, and then it kind of goes into all kind of weird Nordic shit. That's 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 her genre. I have this thing. I don't like harrowing, and I don't like. I like, I want to be entertained, but I don't want to. I don't want to feel sad if I'm watching a program. I like. I like. That's not to say I won't watch. I mean, Game of Thrones broke me when they killed the dragons. But, you know, it's uh, not to say I won't watch programs that make me sad, but I don't like shows that set out to make me feel that way. Or yeah. Books. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if I'd known, and I don't want to give anything away because people might be reading it, it's, you know, it's it's about a woman and her children in Ireland and her husband is gone. He's been just disappeared by the government and it's about her and her family trying to survive. And if I'd known having children myself, how the whole thing would play out, I mightn't have read it. Mm. But it's, it's a very, it's a very good book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if somebody's looking for something and doesn't mind harrowing and, 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 you know, there's always a kind of a sad kind of, um, thrill in reading a book that's based in Ireland and Dublin, do you not think, because it names all the places you know? It's kind of nerdy. Yeah, true, true, true. But I know uh, what you're saying. I mean, I, I've never watched Sophie's Choice because I I, 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 I I know the story and I don't particularly, you know, it's enough for me to know things like that happened without having to to watch them happen. Um, yeah. So, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And look, Sarah read the book. Sarah enjoyed it. So if, you, if you're the kind of person who likes that sort of stuff, what's it called, Sarah, again? Prophet Song. Mm. Um, well, anyway, the thing I've been watching, because as as we have established, my tastes are much trashier than yours. Is this is this British reality TV show called The Traitors, which is uh, on BBC at nine o'clock, I think Wednesday to Friday every week. Um, if you, I think you can probably catch up on the first few episodes if you want to watch it. But basically, um, there are they put like twenty people in a Scottish castle, and they randomly assign four of them as traitors, and the the traitors have to murder somebody. It's like a murder mystery thing. Um, uh, but it's really, really good because it's basically 20 ordinary people turning on each other, trying to figure out who, who amongst them is killing the other people. Um, it's, I'm not selling it. I know I'm not selling it, but trust me, it's entertaining. Um, so I've been watching that. And also a TV show, called, which I think is a couple of years old now, um, made by the people who made The Wire called We Own This City which is about the corruption of Baltimore cops in the mid-20-teens. Really, I didn't expect to like it. I thought it would be kind of woke. And it is a little bit, but it's also very, very good. Some great acting in it. So that is your culture for the week. Um, is there anything we've missed that we said we wanted to talk about and haven't talked about? Um, yeah, there's this, uh, is it the Irish something against racism? They're doing these radio ads. Uh, they're doing, the, they're, they were on the radio saying, that uh, not ads, um, that they're compiling dossiers of people whose tweets they find problematic for hateful conduct, um, which is fascinating. Speaking of, you know, the government, Big Brother watching you and 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 you know taking you off the street for speaking it, st- saying the wrong thing, and mm. um, and they're saying that they'll be ha- they'll hand them over to the guardian and you know to see if you're you know 
Um, Interesting data protection um, uh, concerns there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, more goes to kind of like this, this kind of attitude they have that they can kind of, I mean, I saw, I did a piece um, for today, published Thursday, about the, the World Economic Forum came out this week and said that that artificially, artificial intelligence generated misinformation, disinformation uh, in, in countries with elections this year was the biggest global threat they faced. And Okay, so global warming has been fixed, is it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's it's AI generated misinformation and disinformation, and it just strikes me it, it's in the same family of nonsense. I mean, these people are obsessed with the idea that they can they can just basically regulate opposition out of existence. You can you can you can lease ideas you don't agree with. You can censor them. You can and, and I mean, it, it's so tiresome, but it's also so futile because it just won't work. There there are. You know, if people disagree with you, they will continue to disagree with you whether they can say that via an anonymous account on Twitter or whether they can't. And if you lock them up for it, more people will start seeing you as tyrannical. Um, if you start regulating people's... No, no government or regime in history that has ever gone down that road has survived it in the long term. None. Um, but also... But also except like, maybe North Korea, and they, they've had to take it to an utterly extreme degree. And it's going well. Um, but also, it's not just the it's not just the you know the fact that it won't work, and you know which is all fine. But it's fascinating to me the arrogance of 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 that to 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 like there we live in an environment where where a group of people like that can be so arrogant as to feel that they can and confident to say that in public without being, as they should, eviscerated for saying that. Like the way Roderick O'Gorman said that, you know, uh, NGOs that um, come out against the referendum, you know, will have to will have to explain themselves, basically. Um, again, the arrogance, but the, the it's just the, the where, how has Ireland changed so much in the last even five years that a minister like Roderick O'Gorman would have the confidence and feel like that it was okay and that it, there would be no repercussions for him making a veiled, what I consider to be, in my opinion, a veiled threat like that. That would have been a sackable offence 10 years ago, if you I, ask me. I didn't think it was particularly veiled, but there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean... 10 years ago, John, 10 years ago, name... A referendum that happened ten years ago. This the Shannon, right? The Shannon referendum happened about ten years ago. I think actually to the year. Now imagine the government were all pretty much all were they all say, voting for a yes vote in, to to retain the Shannon. Now yes. imagine imagine in that environment, one of the ministers in that government had come out and said, any government. Any NGO in the state that wants to abolish the Shannon will have to explain themselves. There would have been absolute uproar. But now today it's fine. Yeah, well, there's been this. This is, the, I mean, the fundamental thing about our time that we live in is that 2016 changed everything, and it has now become utterly acceptable. I mean, in in in, in mainstream moderate sort of liberal opinion, and I, I say moderate for a reason because this is this is why it's shifted. It's not. I mean, people like. Uh, Roderick Gorman were always like this. But I mean amongst the people who are political correspondents for the Irish Times and 
people who kind of like, you know, have who are commentators on news talk and, and Today FM and so on. 2016, Brexit and Trump shook them up so much that it is, it, it, they resolved that that would never happen again and it is acceptable to do whatever is necessary to ensure that that kind of thing never happens again. And if that means strong-arming a few NGOs, so be it. If that means, you know, introducing laws to regulate speech, so be it. If that means, if that means you know, putting pressure on social media companies to censor what people can say and what's promoted, so be it, because it's all in a good cause. Once you convince yourself that you're doing stuff in a good cause, you can justify almost anything, which is also the story of every tyranny in history. Um, but that's, I think that's that's what um, it is. Hmm? I just, I, I, I think that, <laughs> I mean. I think that you know if if a story had come out, what would have happened before is a story would have come out come out where some whistleblower would have said that the minister put pressure on them to do this or do that and they were all very scared yeah. and that minister would be fired uh like 100% and now he doesn't have to strong arm anybody or send any scary emails or anything. you just say it in the media and scare them all that way and it doesn't save some time because we can just keep, they can all hear it by the media it's fascinating to me i mean i think that there will be I, I don't, I really don't think I'm being dramatic when I say that I think in the future there will be like studies or people will write theses. Is that the plural of thesis? Theses. Theses on this period in Irish history with and, and, the, and the interaction between the media, politics and public mood. I think people will, will, will write about this in the future and because it has changed so fast. And there is just this unbelievable arrogance there that another group, um, the Irish, whatever it is, against racism, which I presume are a government government funded agency, um, can come out and say that they're going to start compiling dossiers on people's tweets. Mm. I mean, okay, why not their photos and names and addresses? Well, like, but you know what I mean. Like, think about it. Like, put yourself back into 10 years ago and say, John, 10 years from now, there's going to be state-funded organizations coming out talking about how they're going to be start making dossiers of people whose tweets they find problematic. Well, not to be, by, the way, by the way, not to be not to be uh, confused with tweets that, that might be illegal or there might be a legal case. No, no, just things they find problematic. Like, yeah, it's fascinating. Ah, sure, look, I, I'm always glad when more people read my tweets. And I suspect, I suspect a few of mine are going to end up in there. Probably yours too. You can get quite spicy lately. You would go with Joe Brawley. But I think we might save that for next week's episode because we're way over time. Well, uh, it'll be, it, yeah. I, I had to go Joe Joe Brawley because Joe Brawley is a mean man who wrote a horrible article about lit, or, uh, the darts, young darts semi or second place. I could talk about Luke Littler all night. I'm so impressed with him. Well, I don't know anything about him, but I know that he's 16. And ultimately, real real quick, he, um, Joe Riley wrote a really mean-spirited article about him saying about his weight, his size, his appearance, and, um, you know, giving him some kudos for his achievements. But ultimately, as I pointed out to Keith yesterday, it's still a really mean article because, and if you were Littler's father or mother, you wouldn't want him to read it, even though it has some vague, praise for him within it it's still commenting on his appearance and it's horrible and it's yeah. saying that he's a combination he's like someone not attractive and some other not attractive person had a baby and this and the result is Luke Litter well I think that Joe Brawley is like 
Um, you know, that mean drunk man in the pub who says horrible things to everyone around him. And, you know, the really horrible teacher you had in school who loved to, who kind of got off on ridiculing people and like and putting people down. I think those two having a pet baby is Joe Raleigh. Yeah, I read the article. Um, I just thought it was just, it was just unfortunately, I mean, I used to, I I, I say this genuinely, I used to love Joe Bradley. I thought he was one of the few people in the country who's ever made GA punditry interesting because when I was growing up, I used to watch the Sunday game and you'd have Pat Spillane and Colin O'Rourke and Michael Lister sitting there. And like, you know, it, it, you compared it to sort of like the soccer punditry where you'd have Dunphy and Giles tearing strips of each other. He was so kind of stale by comparison and Joe Brawley is one of the few people who ever actually shook it up and was prepared to say controversial things and challenge players and and, and kind of go against this GA ethos of kind of like you know you can never say anything critical about a player's performance because they're amateurs um, and I think he, he was but, but in the last year or so and not just on the Luke Littler stuff but in in his political contributions I don't mind anyone being left wing Okay, but there are, there are lots of people out there, many of them are friends of mine who who yeah. probably share a lot of his views, including on his very loud about Israel and Gaza at the moment. There are a lot of people who will agree with him on that. But there's a tone and a meanness and a nastiness to the yeah. stuff he's been saying, um, which is just unpleasant. Yeah, I thought I his article, that. About, I thought his article about Luke Litter, Littler was was deeply unpleasant. Um, yeah. I don't know anything about him. I don't have, like I. I I the don't. most impressive thing about him is not the fact that he's really good at darts, although he's really good at darts. I mean, because I, you know, his darts sport is just, a, you know, it's it's a phenomenal talent, and he has it, and he's really really good. The most impressive thing about him is his maturity for his age. Mm. Um, and people who've watched him will know what I'm talking about, and people who haven't won't. So there's no no need to explain it. But this is a guy who is 16, but he he not only could he physically pass for 30. But in terms of emotional maturity and level-headedness, the guy could pass for thirty years of age, and I think. But but he parents, is his parents, whoever they are, did an amazing job. But he is sixteen, and you know he's just come second in a big tournament. He's obviously like you know become famous very fast, and he's somebody's son, and you know that article just rubbed me up the wrong way because I just think like in general, we've had this conversation before about people like Dylan Mulvaney and, and people that we, you know, that we agree with some of their points, but we don't like when they're mean about people, about the way they look or whatever. Like a 16 year old who's just gotten famous in the last week, like leave it out on the weight and the appearance for God's yeah. sake. Completely agree. I'll make one point though about Luke Littler. Um, and I'm sure, I hope, this doesn't fail your mean test. He has a 21-year-old girlfriend. Uh, earlier on, you said to me about uh, me taking a particular view on matters because uh, because the genders were reversed. And I'd just say to you, if the genders were reversed there, there'd be a lot more chat about that than there is at the moment. Oh, I think the opposite. I think that that's bizarre, like fascinating that he has a 21-year-old girlfriend because I can't imagine being 21 and being interested in a 16-year-old boy. But um, maybe, as you say, he's extremely mature, but... Yeah, that is unusual, right? It is, but and and you no know, fair play to him. And as, as long as there's nothing illegal happening, fair, you know that my attitude is live and let live. But I'm not sure that attitude would be. Seventeen already, is he? I don't know. I, I think don't he turned seventeen in the last week or something. Anyway, anyway, we really have. We've gone over for about an hour and ten minutes. If you've stuck with us for the whole conversation, thank you very much. We'll take it as a compliment. Uh, if you haven't, you'll hear this, so it's not relevant, but we'll be back next week, as we all are, always are, for another edition of The Week That Really Was. Until then, from Sarah and from myself, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you one week from today.